Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Welcome, Allison. Hello. And hello to our very special guest today, Karima. And how Hi. do I pronounce your last name, Karima, so I get it right? Is it it's, Moyer or Moyer? It's Karima Moyer. Um, it's actually, it is a French name, but it's become uh, anglicized. And so I pronounce it Moyer. Okay. Moyer and then, and then, okay. and then Noki. Yeah. Moyer Noki. Awesome. We're so excited to have you here. And I know everybody is eagerly anticipating this episode as are Allison and I. So this is a hugely Mm -hmm. special day. Allison, I want to first shout out to the patrons who are bringing this podcast to everybody. So thank you guys for keeping us on the air and helping us keep learning about and recording amazing bits of food, knowledge and history. And Allison, can you please introduce us all to our guest? Yeah, most certainly I can. Thank you, Andrea, and thank you, patrons. So Karima Moyanoki is um, the author of a book that has completely changed the way that both Andrea and I view Italian food. And (laughs) I think that... Basically, we've mentioned this book on every episode since the beginning of the year, and we filled up (laughs) entire patron episodes talking about it. The book's called Chewing the Fat, and it's a compilation of and commentary on first-hand narratives from 18 Italian women who are in their 90s, or who were at the time of um, talking to them in their 90s, and they're from all walks of life, right from very, very wealthy and aristocratic to very, very poor. And they talk about in these narratives their life, and they concentrate heavily on the fascist era. So that's the 1920s and the 1930s. And the narratives talk about what they ate, how they got their food, how they farmed, their lives at home, and school and and much, much more. And Andrew and I have really have been shocked by the book. We've been educated greatly by the book. We've been inspired yes. by the book. And both of us have been really moved mm-hmm. by the women's stories. And so we're super delighted to have mm-hmm. the collector and curator of the narratives and the writer of the book, Karima, on the podcast today. Thank mm-hmm. you very much, Karima, for being here. And thank you so much for having me. All right. When Allison and I get together, we always ask each other, because we did this before anyways, and so it was natural to continue on the podcast, we ask each other, what's the last thing we ate? And so we forgot to warn you that we were going to ask you that, but um, we always like to ask our guest, what's the last thing you ate <laughs> before you hopped um, on I'm with a us? little bit... I'm a little bit embarrassed as a culinary historian um, that I do a lot of um, a lot of cooking. I do a lot of things from scratch um, to really to a fault and a lot of historical, uh, interesting, fascinating things that I make that are not always good. But um, it's something that I use food as a way of 
traveling back in time um, and getting acquainted with with other periods of time. But um, today was the first day of the semester I teach at the University of Siena. Wow. And I finished teaching at, uh, it was our first day of the, the semester I teach it, finished teaching at noon. I ran to Esse Lunga because I teach in Arezzo at the University of Siena and they have a supermarket there that I love because I don't love the supermarkets um, in my area. And so I went there and I did my shopping and it was one by the time I was done and I was feeling peckish. And so I grabbed out of the, um, out of the, one of those heated cases, mm -hmm. a package of uh, spicy chicken wings and I ate them <laughs> in my car. Yum. So I sat in my car and ate them because then it's a 45 minute drive home and I knew that I would be really hungry. So that was the last thing I ate. You know, you said in one of your interviews that our idea of authenticity doesn't allow for evolution. <laughs> so we will acknowledge yeah. this as one of the evolutions of, <laughs> of a diet. Right. <laughs> That's right. Nice one. Oh, okay. So let's so. Um, dive into the book, Rima. Your mm. book reveals that the um, the traditional cozy idea we have of what Italians have historically eaten, their food traditions, is just wrong. And it's clear from your snapshot from 1920 to 1940 that what the families and individuals ate was very different to what most of the world view as Italian cuisine. Can you explain this idea to us more in your own words so we can be super clear on it and our listeners can? Um, yeah, it's often said that Italian cuisine is a misnomer. It is something that doesn't exist um, and that the only thing that exists maybe is regional cuisine. And I would have to say from there, well, uh, regional cuisines is as well something that has been created out of our desire to um to have this feeling of belonging and um and con uh continuity with the past because it gives us a sense of of comfort and identity now so the same thing that happened with italian cuisine in the creation of italian cuisine which was actually which was quite commercial um, <clears throat> um, but the same thing also happened then later with the creation of the concept of, of, of regional cuisine, where you, you, it, traditions are always things that are selected and dusted off from the past and embellished and, um, sort of made into this collage of, of who we are and what represents us. Um, and what did I want? To, what I wanted to capture with this book is um, the difference between that collage and the very important idea of tradition and what people were actually eating, which then didn't become um, something where you can buy a book on regional cuisine and. Uh, sort of pick off a whole bunch of dishes or go into a rustic restaurant um, and and eat things that are supposedly from the cucina povera 
which translates uh, into the into poor cuisine, which is which is very much hailed today. Okay, well, you're talking about a cuisine which is not a cuisine, but it's just food that people ate, um, and there was something going on there that then became deified after World War II because it was it was very economically salient to do so when you have Italy in post-war reconstruction, tourism coming in, people looking for those foods, as well as food being a way that people reconstructed their own identity. Italy needed to not only reconstruct its buildings um, and its political system after the fall of fascism, um, but also its sense of pride. And that was very much done um, through, through, through food. But in the meantime, what happened in, in creating that and in this um, explosive skyrocketing deification of an idea of Italian cuisine, the, the, um, the lives of these people and how they lived and what came before that, okay, um, got, a, it got sort of swept away, also because it was part of fascism, uh, when you're talking about a period of time that goes from 1922 to 1943, that's an entire generation. Now, when when a, 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 a Nazi the Nazism gets so much more airplay, which was actually a 10 year period, fascism was a, was a 20 year period, and so it was possible to have done your entire formative years and more than that. Um, Within within that mindset, okay, within a um, a certain approach to 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 perceiving eating and food and how it was changing in that moment, okay, um, and um, so that's the thing that I wanted to capture because. Fascism is such a hush-hush thing still in, in Italy, and so those voices were going to fall into the shadows and simply be forgotten because it's a period of time that people still want to forget. Mm. Okay? So, uh, but, but in saying, though, that some people like to say about my book, oh, this is, this is what Italian food really is, um... But I like to emphasize that it's an evolution and the creation of Italian cuisine is part of an evolution, um, but that what it does, though, is it gives an idea of timelessness, then that part is not true um, because it's part of the evolution of, Ital of, of Italian food, I want to call it. Mm. Why do you okay? Uh, mm. well, I was I was just wondering. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, why you think the the ideas here now so prevalent? Where this information came from? You know about 
the this I guess mythical Italian diet that now you're sort of debunking in a way as you're talking now and in your book well because no one yeah I, I mean no one wants to um to look back on the fascist period um and it, it's difficult to pull a sense of pride out of that hmm. um and so in addition to what what then comes in play is the development of the idea of the Mediterranean diet, which is also very, um, it's very much about an ideal of an idea of what was available, but not necessarily reflecting what what anyone was actually eating or what what anyone could afford to eat, but what mm. was but what was available to eat. Uh, so, for example, in the South, that whole that sort of thing, then those are things that can get picked up with pride. Um, and so constructing an idea of pride is why this um, why this whole chapter in Italian food was was kind of uh, swept under the rug. Mm-hmm. Um, also, because. Under the uh, umbrella of of Italian cuisine and the Mediterranean diet, which are not the same thing necessarily, um, you're selling a lot of products. Mm, it's economically right. sound. It's very romantic. Yeah. Um, and a, a, a lot of people have a, a difficulty with. Well, then they get into, but Italian food is good. Well, yes, Italian food is is good then there's no de- there's no denying that <laughs> but um the thing i was trying to capture was something else so there are a lot of things that that need to be balanced here of um you know the idea of the the nutritious delicious idea of the mediterranean diet um what italian cuisine is which is a lot of um uh, you know it, Salumi, uh, there is quite a lot of meat in it. If you go to a restaurant, you're going to be very hard pressed to find the vegetables on the menu. Mm. Um, There, it's it is a white flour, refined white flour cuisine with uh, with pasta and bread. Um, And I emphasize that a a lot in the book about the that desire for white bread. Right. So yeah, thank you called it in one of your interviews the the aspiration to eat the food of our betters has driven yes, yes. some of our modern cuisine so if i were to ask you another thing you said that really piqued my curiosity because actually when allison and i got together this was the fourth episode that we did on this podcast was we talked about how a lot of the foods that people subsisted on because it was kind of trash food or you know, the the fifth quarter or whatever, um, has now become so elite and expensive that people think of it as Mm. out of reach, you know, bone broth or, you know, these, you know, sauerkraut is just too expensive, you know? So if I was going to ask you, what did people eat? You're telling me we didn't 
the Italians weren't eating pizza and pasta every single day, you know, under fascism. So what were they eating? What would you say? Um, yeah, the, the myths that come out, um, that <clears throat> some of which were surprising to me because while I was, while, you know, I've been in Italy for 30 years and I have watched, um, for the time that I've been here, the perception of what Italian food is and cuisine and, um, the myth-making and the group think and the stories that go on. Um, but the olive oil, the availability of tomatoes, the idea of eating, um, of eating pasta every day and who was able to afford it. Uh, and, and these things are not consequences. Now, I, while I'm writing about the, the fascist era, um, these ideas are not consequences of fascism, okay? But something that, that was, a, was a long time. Uh, in, I mean, when you get to fascism, you have people who, who start saying, well, the difference here is that no one is dying of hunger anymore, okay? People may be hungry. They may be having a um, substandard, nutritionally substandard diet in many cases, okay? But they're, but they're not dying of hunger. And, um, and, and that's kind of the, the difference on this continuum of the history of Italian food, okay? But you still, the, what we consider Italian food now you've got is the tomato sauce and all of the vegetables, the, um, the, the eggplant, peppers, zucchini, um, which are all with the exception, well, except eggplant took quite a while to, to really enter in, into the cuisine as a, um, as, as part of Italian food. For, for many reasons. Um, that one's a little bit different. And then you have the other foods that are part of the Colombian exchange, which even that term, it needs to be looked at again. People are, um, yeah. culinary historians are, are hmm. now looking for another way of talking about that, col that col Colombian exchange. Um, but those things had not happened yet uh, either, or they were very new. Um, the availability of, of of tomatoes, for example, and tomato sauce, and um, even the idea of eating raw tomatoes came came so much later. So I don't know if I got sidetracked away from too far away from your question. No, no, I think which okay, okay. I wanted you okay. talked about you know ideas that surprised you. And I wanted to ask about the biggest surprise for me in the book, which was the busting of the idea that olive oil has been used throughout Italy as the main fat for like forever. And mm -hmm. the women's interviews over and over again, they talk about using lard. And you comment on the pig and the lard quite often in the book. And you've also got the section 
that you just referred to a little, little moment ago about the Mediterranean diet, which you title the so-called Mediterranean diet. I wondered if you could talk for a little while on olive oil, lard and, and the kind of the myth that we have around that regarding Italy. Yeah, um, it was very important for families. Uh, most families were rural and most families then um, had a pig. Uh, why didn't, if they were so hungry, why didn't they have more than one pig? Because a pig will eat a third of its weight in food every day and you've got to be able to supply that. Um, they, they do forage and everything. But, but then a, the pig was also going to supply cheap fat and they weren't raised as they are now to, to be lean and, um, to have, and to provide a lot of lean meat. You, you opened your pig and the first thing that you wanted to see is how much fat was going to be there because it was not only, uh, for cooking, it was also considered that there were, was not refrigeration. And so you could cap things basically with a cap of lard that would then become solid. Um, you could, you could grease the, the leather on your shoes, a machinery. It was, it was used for all, for, for all kinds of things. In addition to then being a pig was always then put into, um, into salumi, the, the, um, the cured, the cured meats. Mm -hmm. So those were things again, without refrigeration that your family was going to be able to, um, and we're not talking about digging into, but pick at throughout, throughout the year and, and have this sort of, um, a representation of a of a meat that is going to hold in it, throughout the winter when you don't have a refrigerator. Okay, so um, the idea of of eating of eating pork as meat was not very common. Um, so lard was the cheapest fat. Olive oil was not available everywhere. There are certain areas that were olive oil areas. Um, some of them in the south. Uh, then Liguria was an has was an important olive oil area, um, and other people simply didn't have it. But your your pig and the and the pork fat was was generally what people used as their fat resource. Um, wealthier people or people also in the Emilia-Romagna area where their cuisine is very much based on, first on butter, okay? Um, but that was for the, the wealthier table. Using butter was an expression of wealth as well. If someone in your family was not well, you would try to pro procure some butter. Um, and I have seen things like like curatives of having to, to pick someone up and then give them a little bit of energy, putting a little pat of butter in their coffee. So, and that would be something you would give someone when they were, when they were not, not feeling well, it was caloric and also that energy boost from, um, from coffee, which was also really difficult to procure. So, um, but the idea of the Mediterranean diet has, a, there, there are a lot of things that you need to hold on to in understanding that first, the 
uh, idea of it coming about or the studies of it, because it wasn't really named until much later, but the studies of it coming out in the um, in the 1950s with uh, Ansel Keys, who's an American, um, doing the seven the seven countries study, some of which involved then involved Italy. Now that's going to be picked up again in the 1970s when he rewrites his book. Um, Eat Well, Stay Well, and he rewrites that book in the 1970s, 1972, comes out, Eat Well, Stay Well, The Mediterranean Way. In the meantime, he has purchased a home in Amalfi. This is still Ansel Keys. Um, mm-hmm. He's purchased a home in Amalfi, and he's, he's creating this idea that puts together uh, the romantic idea of the Mediterranean and food. Because what you've got coming out at the same time are competitors. He became very competitive about this idea of um, of the fat and heart uh, um, diet association. Okay, that fat was bad, and that we needed to lower that we'll lower fat. Meanwhile, you have Udikin coming out. And um, Atkins coming out with the carbohydrate idea, Utican coming out with the sugar idea, and they were competitive competitors for him. And so he countered that with the Mediterranean diet, okay? Mm-hmm. Which then, Italy and Greece, now there are 22 countries in the Mediterranean. All of them have a different, now we're going to use the cuisine, they have a different cuisine, um, and they, they don't have the same diet. Uh, they don't have the same availability of vegetables. There is a zone that is called a hardiness zone where olive trees grow. That's also been used to define what the Mediterranean is. Um, but the ideas of the Mediterranean diet are very easy to boil down into eat your vegetables, um, don't eat too much meat, uh, exercise, don't smoke. Now, uh, those are all no-brainers. Um, and they, they needn't have been Mediterraneanized and excluding uh, other ideas like the Baltic Sea diet, the um, uh, the the then other people came in with their. You've got instead of the then you had the Mediterranean diet pyramid, which came out in the nineteen nineteen nineties. That came out in nineteen ninety three. Okay, so these ideas are very late, um, mm-hmm. and then they get they get applied to Italian cuisine. Okay, now if we go through the ideal lunch of a Sunday lunch, um, and we think about the Mediterranean diet and Italian cuisine. The ideal lunch starts with crostini. Um, You've got your little pieces of white bread with cheese or some sort of pate or salumi. So you've got your pork, um, and those are coming out in, in, in big trays. Let's move on then to the primo piatto, which is a let's uh, just do the basic thing, which is going to be pasta, 
refined white flour with maybe a little tomato sauce or some sort of sauce on it. Um, move into your second course. Now, a typical second course in Tuscany is going to be a, the centerpiece is a roast um, or some sort of piece of meat. And then side dish, commonly uh, peas cooked with pancetta and some potatoes. You might then after that have a, um, an insalata verde, just a green salad, if you even have that, followed by your dessert and then the, and then the fruit course. Okay, so the, that cuisine and that lunch, which is an ideal traditional lunch, and the Mediterranean diet really have nothing to do with each other. It's amazing um, that it that it seems like, you know, you said earlier the creation of a concept, the creation of the concept. And it seems mm. that so many times over there's been creation of a concept here, a concept of olive oil and what it was, a concept of the Mediterranean diet, a concept of how Italians eating and have eaten for yeah. a market, I presume, to, to yeah. market something. Would you agree? Well, right. I mean, uh, looking at the um, the Mediterranean diet pyramid, okay, it is a very easily communica communicated symbol. Um, came out in 1993 in the United States. Uh, there was a big conference in which that was basically created uh, at this conference, sponsored by the California olive growers, and mm. the Greek import, the United States Greek food import uh, companies, okay? At which, now the Mediterranean then has basically been boiled, when you think about the Mediterranean diet um, and the 22 countries that are uh, on the Mediterranean, um, we're basically talking about parts of Italy, Greece, and maybe parts of Spain, but the the Mediterranean is basically that when you're talking about the Mediterranean diet. Mm. But then the cuisine is something else. So again, it's the Mediterraneanization of eat more fruits and vegetables, get some exercise, <laughs> um, which which frankly um, the the studies of juvenile obesity, juvenile obesity in Italy, in the actually in Italy and Greece, um, juvenile obesity in Italy and Greece are the same percentages as they are in the United States, mm -hmm. which is used used as the example of um, you know of of overweight and obese. Whereas it's it's the same, there's the same ratio. Um, the Mediterranean. There was an article in the uh, in the Guardian not too long ago. Spain, Italy, and Greece again are the three countries in uh, in the in the EU where people get less exercise than any of the other European countries. Hmm. Okay, so there's there's. There's this idealization of this idea. I mean, it's sort of like, I, I sometimes say that it's sort of like the South Beach diet, which has nothing to do with South Beach. 
It's just, it's just called that. And then it's a diet. The Mediterranean diet is the same thing. Um, a, 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 a couple kilometers down the way from, from where I live is the Giuntini um, a dog food company. Okay. Now they put out a, um, just the, the, talking about, to give the extreme example of the big business that the Mediterranean diet is, um, they put out a dog food called Italian Way. Okay, (laughs) that includes that, you know, and and the language of the advertisement for this is about how you want to take care of your pets in the same way that you (laughs) by including these things, you know, that are part of the the tradition of the Italian cuisine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, Um, and it does include I don't know. (laughs) I don't know in what <laughs> ratio, but, you know, a little bit of rosemary, a little bit of garlic and, it, you know, uh, just what my cats crave. So um, they also make cat food. So, <laughs> so it's called the Italian way. Cosmetics that include kind of, um, you know, the oils and things from the Mediterranean and, you know, mm. all of these timeless kinds of products. I imagine that there are also household cleaners that are Mediterranean kind of cleaners. I don't know. Yeah, um, no one's marketing so, lard as a Mediterranean kind of a, a skin a, cream not. additive or frying things with lard. No one's marketing that that way, are they? <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, um, and what is the thing that I talk about in the book, then the other aspect, you've got Ansel Keys and his very ambitious doctor, wanting to um, solve the problem of the uh, what was becoming the cardiac um, alarm that was going off uh, in, in Western countries, um, wanting to resolve that. Then you have the Mediterranean diet pyramid. But then you also have UNESCO and making the Mediterranean diet um, an intangible, and I like to say that word again, an intangible heritage. Now, how a food that you need to ingest um, it be, it can actually be intangible? Well, because, because of the wording that they use about, it's about traditions, it's about being together, it's about neighborliness, it's about inclusivity. Um, now, if you take out the word in the way that the whole thing is worded for that, the way it's been inscribed by UNESCO, all you need to do is take out the word Mediterranean diet and put in traditional Chinese food and it will read exactly the same. Wow. Um, fest, food festivals. Uh, it's about husbandry and fishing and plates and um women passing down traditions well how is it that that's different from anyone else's uh, it's it's very navel gazing about the um the mediterranean and exclusive about others mm-hmm. as as in as if everyone else was was um you know, dropping dead from their whatever their their awful cuisine has been for the last <laughs> few hundred years. So, sorry about that. 
so you. yeah, I get now, and I want to I want to say I want to emphasize I live in Italy. I love Italy. I love Italian food. I I, I my life is dedicated to the study of uh, Italian food history. Um, that is my life. That is what I get up and do every day and read about every day. So it, a, I'm, I am down on commercial ploys, um, mm. group thinks, mm. uh, that kind of thing. I am not, uh, against Italy, Italian traditions, um, mm. recognizing the importance of Itali- Italian traditions to, right. a, as a social binder, they, it, it is very important that we feel, uh, particular, you know, in these times that we're in right now, that we we mm-hmm. uh, not in a way that excludes other people, that but that we feel closer to each other, that we appreciate mm-hmm. um, being alive and and mm-hmm. yeah. all of the wonderful things that there are. You know, I don't want to get too new agey, but um, yeah. So I just <laughs> wanted to make that that sort of caveat there that I don't mean to be a, a wet blanket on it. So yeah. It's so, so interesting to me because, and I know you've talked about this too, a lot of our elders and women from this generation, for instance, are being looked at for their longevity, but then the result we're being given is a falsification, like the Mediterranean diet myth or the olive oil myth, you know, where in reality, Mm -hmm. those women were raised on lard. When you started this project, did you know this was what you're going to find? A lot of these huge revelations and myth busting. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say, I would say in half because what was what was very interesting for me was while I was there to do this myth busting mission with these. Um, with these older women, uh, because it couldn't come, it couldn't come from me. I I've lived here for 30 years, but I, I am American. Um, my life is in Italy. I don't have a home elsewhere. I, I live and work and am married and uh, everything here. So this is my, my life, but, um, but I am still, uh, uh, you know, American. Hmm. Um, and, so it it needed to come from someone else's uh mouth um from someone right. else's experience and that's why i i approached this book in in that way also the way that i've written it in narratives whereas a an oral history book is often written a person is writing about their research and their findings and then mm-hmm. it's interspersed with um, things that people actually said. Now I do the opposite where I have narratives where I intersperse information that might be missing to, to the person who is, um, outside of an Italian culture and Uh needing to have some filler information because I really want this information to come from this other voice that is a voice of experience that I don't have. So, um, what I discovered is is how much of the myth making, even though I was there to to do the myth busting, how much of it um, 
uh, I had also bought into myself. Mm. So what surprised you the most? What surprised you the most out of all that? Because there's so much in the book. uh, uh, of course, the lard and and mm. yeah. coffee, um, uh, yeah. oh. uh, tomatoes. How um, uh, how I'm going to be careful when I say this. How infrequently people ate pasta. Uh, the the it, it it was it was more of a treat most places. Mm if you could afford it. Um, so for example, in the first narrative with, um, with Julia, she's from Milan. Uh, she is a, a she's in the, the city. I mean, they didn't eat pasta. If you, yeah. if you could afford flour, she says. Um, but that was just, that was just too much for them. Her, her father worked as a, uh, not even as a florist. He worked selling flowers at a stand on the street um, for a florist selling it. And so that was her economic situation. And for them, even though we think of, again, going back to this idea of, of poor cuisine um, and the, pasta, uh, the, the cucina povera, I mean, cucina povera is povera. It's, re- it's really poor. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, uh, Giuditta, who who was in and she's an extreme example working making charcoal in the mountains and she and her family went up there eight eight months a year eight nine months out of the year and they were just up there and they had polenta every single day every single meal um you know they weren't Picking off rustic favorites off of a off of a a, you know a, a trattoria menu Mm-hmm. Um, it was, yeah, it was a, a monophagous diet, monophagous meaning, meaning the same, right. the same food every single day. Yeah. So, um, so that was, that was surprising to me. Um, yes. <laughs> um, so it's just so fascinating. And the in, introductions that you give to each woman that you spoke with, I think I read them all repeatedly because they're so gripping and, and how you said in another interview, I listened to, you said that one woman couldn't remember how to write the L for her name. You know, this, this is just a a kind of childhood that is hard to imagine for a lot of us. So I'm going to try and cram two questions into one here and just take and do what you will with it. So I want to ask what it was like interviewing the women because I want to know what you would say to those of us who desire to um, sit down with our elders and help record Mm. some of these memories wherever we are in the world. And somebody might be listening to this and think, okay, I'm going to start doing this and visit with my neighbors and just sit down and record their narrative. Mm. But then you also alluded mm-hmm. to on Instagram, on that, that post, you made a comment about the importance of and the style of oral narrative. And you did just touch on that where you said you actually kept it in the, in the form of the way they said it. And you even had slang and things in there, the way that they were speaking, which was really amazing. So could you talk to us about sitting down and recording and what it was like for you? to do that 
Okay. Um, <clears throat> so the, the, the process that I went through was, um, at the time I was uh, really into my iPad. I have uh, moved away from the, but, but at the time, um, I would go to the interview with an iPad. It was an object that none of them recognized. So I would um, I would record the the interview on this thing that was just sitting on the table that was not a microphone to them. It was an object that okay. As again, I said they they, they didn't they didn't recognize it was not going to be intimidating to them. Okay. Um, and, and, and we would sit down and I started off with, with an idea. Now I interviewed a lot more women than ended up in the, in the book because I wanted to have representative types in the book of different kinds of people from North to South, um, the different kinds of people on the, the farm ladder from people who own the farm to people who are farm hands, um, and then, uh, small towns, uh, big cities, the territories as well, because Italy used to have Libya and it used to have Istria. Um, so I wanted to get this, this, a uh, broad spectrum picture and, um, and again, I went in with my ideas thinking that things like they were cooking out of the Artuzzi cookbook, which was absolutely ridiculous, um, and which I learned very quickly that that was just that that is such a a a um a myth that was created in the 1970s when that book was sort of resuscitated. Uh, extremely authoritatively by uh, Piero Camporesi. I don't want to to put that down um, because it's an amazing work that he did, and that it ended up on the the bookshelves of every cultured Italian home as culinary heritage uh, that no one cooks out of, frankly. Um, but everyone's got it on their bookshelf, and I'm thinking that. You know that the as well that that these women were acquainted with that book. I mean, are you kidding? Most of the women that I interviewed had had four years of school. Um, some of them didn't really go on to to you know they learned how to read, but reading wasn't a thing. Being able to buy a book, um, you needed to have a certain amount of money. A speaking Italian well enough again. Um, this is a very uh, uh, small group of people who are going to be uh, reading that book. So, um, every time I did an interview, I would go home immediately and listen to it and translate it so that I would remember the tone, um, because I'm translating into another language and I wanted to capture the way that that, that, that interview felt to me. Um, and I and I tried, made an attempt to make everyone's voice different. Now I had um, my this the, the the book was reviewed by um, a couple of you know high end newspapers, neither of which were American. I'm American. 
I know the American linguistic palette and uh, that's what I tried, what I, what the resource that was available to me linguistically. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, I had a, you know, a, a British critic critique the book well, but said that I was condescending um, in the mm-hmm. way that I, uh, that I uh, translated it and that everyone sounded like they were from the South. What? So, because that's maybe he's never been to Maine. I don't know. But mm. <laughs> um, so anyway, so there was, there, there, that wasn't, but, you know, another British man said to me, well, why didn't you just translate it all? Now, this is a well-respected man that I, I, I highly respect, um, a, a mentor to me. He said, why don't you just translate them all in the Queen's English? And I said to, actually, he said the King's English. Um, and I said, <laughs> well, because they... Because they didn't all speak the king's English. Mm. I mean, these were all individual right. people. So I tried to, I tried to render that individuality for each narrative. Okay, um, and learn also about this is my advice to listen to them after you do each one. Learn about yourself as an interviewer. I interrupted mm. too much. Um, they were saying just these precious nugget things, and I would just I would break in and say something, and I needed to learn to pull back and to get mm. them to speak in as long as stretches as 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 possible. Okay, where mm. I wasn't um, in, in oral history, it would be called contaminating it. Okay. Mm. Um, mm. Another thing that is considered contaminating in doing oral history interviews, which I am a, a, a absolutely against, is they they say don't have anyone else in the room. And I thought, well, I'm just going to try and have me and the and and the woman here, and it's just going to be us. And um, there were that families did not want their elderly person to just be in a room with me. Okay, and mm-hmm. so the family would be around or. Um, they suddenly got very impressed that a researcher was coming into the home and wanting to speak to their grandmother, um, whereas they had never listened to her before. And so now seemed to be the time that they wanted to all sit around and listen. And, And I watched those women absolutely bloom when the family was around. And so anytime I went to an interview, I would say, you know, if the family wants to be around or whatever, that's fine with me. Um, and they generally did. And, and it was such, um, I, I can't, I don't, I really don't have the words to describe the feeling that I have, um, of watching that happen and, and making that transpire because, um, you can just feel that this was the first time that these families were actually paying attention to what they had to say to what the older you know yeah it's amazing to hear that and you know yeah I really enjoyed the interviews that had other people in the room when they spoke as well you know to hear the one with the mother and the daughter who ran the Osteria and the one with the husband who talked about his experience of the war it it brought much more the, the women came to life with that kind of around them it it as a reader, it gave me more to hear those things as well. And the thought that right. someone was actually listening to the women 
when they have such rich and amazing history to share mm -hmm. and yet no one in no one would have listened to them no one was listening to them it just it it's um it feels wonderful to me that that you enabled that to happen with those women that you talked to yeah, so I, 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 I do want to encourage women. This is now is the time because there's a thing that happened um, a, with World War II that everywhere changed, changed uh, mm. food, changed culinary, if you want to use the word traditions, um, uh, customs, habits, what was what was classically eaten, uh, whatever words you want to use there, there was a change that happened. And and that generation is going. Um, it needs to be done now. And uh, food is such a way to enter into into history. I I really didn't realize how much that whole historical thing was going to open up to me as well because that that wasn't my objective when I when I started off with the book. I thought I was going to go and just talk about food, but you can't just go and talk about food. Um, it, it, the whole thing comes out around it, of of everything that they lived around food, um, and, and 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 this can be done just in in so many places, so many places who have that where the same thing is going on. If we could, um, and I would, I would <laughs> like to encourage people to do that. Mm. Yes. And I, I, I think that's a huge part of what I want to take away from this is that, that momentousness that I felt from you in the book. Allison, if we could get together and just talk about food, our episodes would be a lot shorter, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not possible. I agree. It's just, just woven so into everything. <laughs> I've got another question, which is, the book is just, I mean, it's been momentous for me in changing my appreciation of the country that I live in, changing my idea of history, just changing so many things. It, you know, it looks so innocent just sitting on my shelf and yet it, <laughs> it's full of such information. And I wanted to ask, what do you want people to do with that information, what you've put in that book? What do you want to happen because of it? Well, with, the, with, uh, the information I have in the the book, um, one as you said, and I I would like to um, encourage people to be gathering this uh, this oral history. Um, mm. It will, as it did for me. Mm. I had I had lived in Italy for twenty years, uh, twenty five years, uh, about uh, when no, at that point it was what was it twenty years. Uh, when I started researching this. Now, I thought I knew Italy. I thought I knew food. I thought I knew... Uh, um, I... There was a... However... I did not have a relationship with older people in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and they were like... It was this this thing that I... And and. I needed to get over that and I got over that and, and that opened up a world, but I really, I'm, I'm struggling for words here. Um, doing this book and anyone who, who goes into the, it, it, it completely changed 
the way that mm. I experience Italy now. Um, it completely changed the way I experience food. Uh, the way I experience food in general, the way I experience Italian food, um, all of the, the, the stories that I hear. I know that April 6th is going to be coming up soon with, with, with carbonara and, and that's going to make me absolutely crazy um, <laughs> seeing that explode on, on Instagram. But, um, so, um, that's one thing. Um, the other thing is respecting Italian cuisine as something that has always evolved. Okay. Now I don't want to take, take wind out of the sails of France, but France is very much about a codified, um, the glory of French food is that it is a codified cuisine. And Italy is trying to do that now so that they, in an effort to slow food is about that, about saving traditions, okay? Um, as soon as you're talking about saving traditions, that means that um, who is it that actually knows what those traditions are? Who are the authorities that can say that this is a tradition? Um, and that they are actually not part of daily life anymore, okay? Mm. When you become a tradition, you become something that has been resuscitated or that needs uh -huh. resuscitating, um, that, is, that becomes a reenactment. You, you don't, we don't reenact what, what are going to be traditions in 20 years, the things that we do now that are going to be traditions in 20 years or 25 years, because it takes 25 years to officially become a tradition, um, according to the EU. Um, <laughs> we don't realize that because it's not a reenactment now. Right. Okay. Um, mm. So uh, just an understanding of, of what traditions are, why they're important and, and that they were created um, and to <laughs> be really careful if you, if you sign up for a, um, a tour someplace, uh, <laughs> and go to an, yeah. an, an turismo and, yeah. um, yeah, there's just so much, there's so much money being made off of it, uh, which one would say, you know, good for the Italian e e economy, but I wish it were a little bit more uh, truthful. Yeah, so good for the on economy. The, on the yeah, on the continuum on of um, that's the thing about 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 why oral histories have become important now, because before, um, first of all, history has always been written. I like to say this: uh, history has always been written as if no one ever ate. Right. Now, suddenly, um, food history has become a, a field and we're, mm. we're writing all kinds of history that and to, to be very careful about what you read about history um, and food history and how much of it is affectively motivated. Mm. Um, so and saying that and talking about oral history then. These are people who, on a continuum between truth and falsehood, are giving you a truthful 
account of um, what they lived. Mm. And, and the value of oral history lies in that, okay? If you want to go and look up the dates of wars and things like that, then you can go to a different kind of book. Um, because this is about truthfulness, which is the other side of the coin. So, so uh, I have one more question, if I may. <laughs> um, is there, okay, so one of the women you interviewed, and I don't remember which one, and I apologize for that, she said something that really struck me as, as funny and true. And she said, so this is what we had. So that's what we made. See there tradition. <laughs> we just, we turned it into a tradition. <laughs> um, and it might've been the same woman. And she said, oh, everybody asked us what we ate, but we just ate food. You know, I, I don't know what we ate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. is, we didn't have, right. So we, you, um, the um we didn't have recipes and they're talking about well, there weren't yeah. recipes and you had a you had a recipe for your for those couple of days during the year when you had a certain kind of particular harvest festival um yeah. luigina talks about that you know we didn't use recipes except for that dish that we had right. once a year, then, mm. um, you know, and then maybe we, we also made, she made the cake from, um, from Mantova, uh, Brisolona, et cetera. Um, there, but there, you know, they just, there was food and you ate it. Right. And, I, and, and yeah. And that really comes out, you know, where, and, and the different concept of what, this is the other thing, another thing, another takeaway. This is definitely a takeaway. The concept of enough. Um, Mm. So many of them felt like what they had was enough. When you've got potatoes and beans in the barn, um, you've got food and that was enough. Right. They had, you know, uh, uh, um, Ida, they had a, a mule and they were rich. Right. So, and how much our concept of what enough is has changed. Mm-hmm. That's a takeaway that I'd like to. That's I'd a, like I, people who I read have this thought book to that. You. Mm. I remember thinking that as I was reading through, I thought, so for the Mediterranean mm-hmm. diet, you could eat like, once a day and sometimes not at all. <laughs> there you go. Right. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you'll lose weight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it was um, Viera who made the crostini neri. Is that what it was called? The crostini neri. Like, you probably, right, right. yeah, she said, you probably think this is like really poor food, but this is like high, high table for us, you know? Oh, oh yeah. She, she made that because you know, there wasn't anything in her past that she wanted to make for me. Um, mm. And so she made something that was really special. And I'll tell you, those that that's a recipe that I make often because those are oh. really the best crustini I've ever had. But, um, um, you know, there just wasn't anything that she felt not embarrassed by. Wow. Of the way that they, of the way that she ate at home. I mean, right. um so, yeah. So 
since I'm sorry, uh, I interrupted you there with Vera. No, yeah. no, this is what we want to hear. These amazing nuggets that you are <laughs> passing on to us. I, I don't want to interrupt you. There, there is then you, you referred to it multiple times in there. The women all refer to it at some point. It's not like there was a recipe book. They were just kind of putting together what they had. And you also speak all the time to the idea of, you know, what is authentic, what is regional, what has changed, you know, mm. but mm. for somebody on the outside, me, I'm an American. I read and speak English. I suppose I can, I can cobble my way through some Italian, but is there, you, you did refer, refer to Artuzzi and of course, I suppose Apicius is also there for us, but is there a book that you would suggest or some books or places where we could look and find some, maybe some of these traditions that came out of Italy, the way they preserved meat and things like that, that we could read or try to recreate over here? It's translated into English. Um, there's a book that is called Le Ricette Regionali Italiane. Um, you can tell by the way that I'm saying that, that it's not in English. Uh, I'll, leave, I'll take an Italian it, title, it, that's okay. <laughs> okay. If, um, it is Le Ricette Italiane. Okay. Now, this is, uh, she started, there's the magazine La Cucina Italiana. Okay, um, that is also now owned by Condinast uh, that began in 1926 and then ended and then was bought up again in 1952 or three, and um, and then uh, carried on by a woman called Anna Gossetti della Salda. And she also started in 1962 traveling around Italy for five years um, to write a, a cookbook about regional cuisine. Because what happened after, uh, because this is when the concept of regional cuisine is coming out. Now imagine fascism, which is trying to create an idea of um, an, a, a national Italian identity, okay? Whereas that is just was just something that was not happening in Italy, which had always been so fragmented. Um, even even the the regions themselves had not the the lines weren't drawn until until very much later, but um, uh, so that is when it, it, what happens after fascism is you have a recoil away from nationalism back into your own local kind of thing and a valorization of um of the regional of what's going on more locally okay region is already really big so mm -hmm. a, a, as a as a culinary concept so that's developing as well as um the loss of those traditions because of the industrialization a a just wildfire industrialization of Italy after 1960, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, and food is just, is becoming industrialized. People are leaving the farms in droves, moving up north to, to work in factories where you're going to have a better life, 
Okay. Um, and that's, that's what makes food change so drastically. So books like this are, first of all, that she was older and, and, and going around, um, but, but collecting already at that date, um, regional cuisine. Now, some people would like to say, oh, but there's the silver spoon, the, that, 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 um, Mm -hmm. what, who was the publisher of that? Begins with a P, I don't remember. Um, the silver spoon, which actually began earlier than that, but that was about a, that is not a regional cuisine cookbook. Okay. It does have regional dishes, but it's about that new Martha Stewart trying to get Italians into a Martha Stewart entertaining middle-class kind of, um, kind of mood. That's what the silver spoon is about. In fact, you can hear that in the title. Whereas, um, uh, whereas uh, Le Ricette Regionale Italiane is about uh, Italian regional recipes is the, is the translation. And that's beginning and end what it is. Um, it's an enormous book that I have tried, tried, tried and failed, failed, failed to, um, to get a sponsorship to, to translate. Ah. Um, so that is an absolute treasure that I even had, had the, um, the, the owner of it on board for a while. And then she got really scared because she's afraid of losing the rights to it or whatever. Um, but, but, uh, unfortunately that book remains unpublished. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. Um, but if you do read a little bit of Italian, that unpublished um, in, in English so, or, or but unpublished in, in English, uh, yeah. uh, published in Italian. Yes, yes. And um, um, what's the author's name again? again? What's the author's name uh, again? Anna, Go- Anna Gossetti della Salda. Thank you. Anna Gossetti della Salda. Le ricette regionali italiane. Thank you. Wow, thank you ever so much for your time, Karima. We, um, both of us are completely enamoured with you. the book. Thank you, um, yes. Just, I know that a lot of people who um, follow us are already um, reading the book halfway through because they're contacting me mm. and saying, oh, wow, I just read this bit. It's just yeah, amazing. Yeah. And people are telling uh, me that okay. it's moved them to tears, um, which yeah. it did to mm. me as well. Um, for anyone listening, the book is called, again, Chewing the Fat, An Oral History of Italian Foodways from Fascism to Dolce Vita. And it's by our guest, Karima Moyanocchi. Could you tell us, Karima, where people can find you outside of the book if they want to connect with what you're doing more? Um, yes, I have. Um, I'm very active on uh, Instagram. I publish, uh, I do, I put up a post about, my, my posts are almost exclusively about, um, I don't, I, every, I like every now and then there's a, picture of my cat. Um, but it's mostly <laughs> about, uh, historical, historical Italian food or food history that then I relate it somehow to, um, it, Italian cuisine. So I managed to, to put out some posts for black history month that related, uh, back to Italian food history. So that is Instagram and it is historical Italian food is my handle. I also have 
a website which is which is a little bit neglected but it's got uh, a lot of things where i have longer articles about with that all have recipes uh, attached to them but they go into more depth about uh, italian food history and that is called the the eternal table so theeternaltable.com and I also have another book out that's called The Eternal Table, so not to confuse that book, which is A Culinary History of Rome, which is quite a different tone from Chewing the Fat because it's it's aimed at being more scholarly. It's 2,500 2, years of um, Roman culinary history. So uh, that's quite a different kind of um, of read. Wonderful. And so, so that's that. Um, yeah, I really enjoy your Instagram feed. Um, you take beautiful photographs <laughs> as well as having something interesting to read. And so, Thank you. yeah, I'd recommend that if anyone's on Instagram, go and find um, Karima. And also your website. You say it's neglected, but it's got some good information on there. I enjoyed um, browsing it. <laughs> no, so. I haven't put up a post in, in a long time and I have a newsletter attached to it. Mm-hmm. That um, that I used to put out monthly, and then when COVID happened, it turned into quarterly, and then I haven't put out a newsletter in the last six months. <laughs> so um, I'm going to need to do that. Um, I would also like to mention, I don't know when this is coming out, but April 23rd, mm. is this going to come out before, before April 23rd? Yes, Okay, April 23rd, I'm going to be in the U.S. at the um, Jefferson Foundation, the uh, Thomas Jefferson Foundation in Monticello, giving a lecture on uh, the history of macaroni and cheese with an emphasis on um, the the Jefferson era. A, but I start in ancient Rome and I go through uh, to craft and soul food, how macaroni and cheese became then... Uh, uh, absorbed into the canon of soul food. Um, But it's also going to be streamed online and I will be advertising that on my, my Instagram feed, or you can also look it up at um, on, on the Monticello site. So that's going to be the history of macaroni and cheese from ancient Rome (laughs) through soul food uh, at the Thomas Jefferson foundation, April 23rd. So many things that I love in one sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. Thank you ever so much, Andrea. Do you have anything else you want to add before we let Karima go off and and prepare her supper for my next stack? (laughs) I'll stop. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Wonderful. Karima, do you have anything else you want to add before we say goodbye? Uh, No, no. Thank you very much for, um, for having me. Thank Super. you for joining so, us. Thank you, thank you very Thanks. much. And um, yeah, if you're listening and you've enjoyed the interview, go ahead and um, dive into the book because you won't be disappointed. Thank Mm-mm. you, Karima. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.